It's happy hour here in Singapore, well, almost. But first, my conversation with Kyle Hegarty. Kyle is a Singapore-based entrepreneur with an expertise in sales training and development. For years, he's worked with multinational and Asia-based sales teams and culled from this experience a treasure trove of tales on what it takes to do business in this part of the world. Soon to be released, his new book, The Accidental Business Nomad, a survival guide for working across a shrinking planet. Kyle's diatribe comes at an interesting moment. There are countervailing forces in play. On the one hand, global commerce and internet access are bringing people closer together. On the other hand, some countries are starting to think that too much economic integration is a bad thing. The prospects of recession are on the rise, and leaders from the U.S. to the U.K. are calling for protectionism to safeguard jobs and bolster homegrown businesses. Just as there's no stopping the political winds from shifting, nor can one prevent the wings of commerce from beating. People are at the heart of all commercial exchange, and so it is that Kyle has turned his attention to the many things that can go wrong when diverse cultures meet in the marketplace. For years, Kyle has regaled me with tales of cultural communication mishaps, and so we reconvened this time to hear his latest and to discuss the premise of his upcoming book. In a moment, my conversation with Kyle Hegarty. We've had so many of these conversations in a bar, and I think that the book project that we'll get into starts at a bar. I think every great story should start at a bar. <laughs> Let's make, maybe we'll have a drink after this. Well, maybe if we have to, yeah. <laughs> Twist my arm. I mean, it's already Monday, so yeah. <laughs> so, so before we go into the book and the project and the bar, let's talk a little bit about um, you. How did you first arrive in this part of the world? I got here in many ways by accident. And what I mean by that is uh, through a couple of uh, random situations where uh, my girlfriend at the time was a scientist and some policy changes happened in the U.S. and it accidentally changed her work environment. Uh, because scientists were unhappy there, this was a stem cell uh, funding restriction that happened in the early 2000s, mm. countries around the world started throwing money at this part of uh, this, this science. And so com countries like Singapore, Canada did it, Germany did it, China started throwing money. So there was a brain drain happening out of the U.S. because of this policy. Oh, this is the pro-life backlash where fetal um, stem, cell, stem cell. Yeah, what happened was George W. Bush put a change in, uh, in funding regulations. There was unanticipated consequences there. What happened was that even stuff that had nothing to do with stem cells were suddenly being banned. So people couldn't use mi mac microscopes. Uh, I think it was a situation where scientists just took things very literally. So they said, well, if this had, had some stem cell money to it, nobody's allowed to use it anymore. Some craziness. So like a moratorium. Something like that. And it, it just pissed off a lot of people. It created a lot of un uh, unanticipated bureaucracy. So people started leaving. Now, what happened was Singapore was uh, basically trying to poach uh, this woman and uh, my, my girlfriend, now wife. And I said, well, you know, Asia, yeah. So I was doing sales and marketing for a small company. And I basically just said to my clients, I said, by the way, you know, we're, we're doing this in Asia. I didn't say we can do it. I said we are doing it. A little bit of a, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. As a good salesperson yeah, does. as any good salesperson. You know, we call it the Ghostbusters principle. Just, if somebody asks if you're a god, you say yes, <laughs> right? And so we just went for it. And, and before I knew it, I had more clients in Asia than I did in the U.S. So yeah. I was flying back and forth every month. 
and it finally it was just going okay I, I got to stay here because this is where the this is where the opportunity is and you've been here ever since ever since and that's why I say it kind of happened by accident and then when you arrived here you had a couple little ventures you did uh, some sales training but you also set up a, a, a call center is that right that, so that was the main crux of the business that brought me out here which was setting up what we thought was going to be global marketing campaigns that were out so basically filling sales pipelines for b2b companies uh, that didn't turn out exactly as we expected and I'll, we can get into that in more detail but essentially what what we thought were going to be global rollouts turned out to be anything but what we found was big companies had global teams that were not talking to their local teams and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So anything the global teams wanted to do, the local teams wanted to do the opposite. And we found ourselves as this little agency in, the, in between getting caught in this, in this battle. Trying to help them communicate. Uh, what we were trying to do was just get something done. So the global teams would say, we want to do this standard campaign around the world. And all the local regions were saying, wait a minute, we, don't, we have our own ways of doing things. So this is an outbound marketing campaign yeah, using so call center capabilities. Exactly right. So most in the, in the West, in the U.S., it would be very common for you to pick up the phone, call a stranger, convince him or her to get involved in a twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 project. That's not exactly how things work in other parts of the world. What was happening was that these companies wanted to standardize the process globally and the local teams across Asia were saying, no, 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 that's not how we do it. We want to do more events. We want to do things our own way. Mm -hmm. So it was this global standardization push that came head on into a localization requirement. This feels like foreshadowing. It's a communications issue, and I think this is where we're headed, yeah, is well, it not? Well, so again, like these things happen by accident. I mean, I, I had to change my business model because we, we came here thinking this was going to be this global thing. And it turned out people wanted more local things. And so the first step, and, and the thing I, I still work on most with companies now, is to say, especially at a global situation, before we get into these campaigns, can we take a step back and make sure we're on the same page? Mm. And yeah. what does that entail? Uh, typically a workshop where we sit down with local teams and try and get them to talk to the, the global counterparts or the counterparts in the, in the West, whether it be the UK or the US. And I would say every single situation we've had, the initial premise, people haven't been on the same page in, in terms of how, what are we trying to sell? And, and that's the problem of global simply not communicating effectively, or is that a matter of local uh, being unwilling or resistant to the idea that's being communicated globally? I think it's both. I think both sides are, are guilty of misunderstanding. And I think that there's often, uh, big companies have their, their own politics, but you know we were just getting caught in the middle of it. And oftentimes it was, it was misunderstandings of, well, you know, the U.S. was selling some major uh, solution, but nobody was buying it here. So why would we push that campaign here if that's not what the local market was demanding? Is that because marketing organizations in the U.S. or Europe or elsewhere uh, simply are out of touch with sales and therefore they're driving a campaign because they have the budget to do so but aren't doing their homework at the ground level? I, I think that, that uh, the, the gap between marketing and sales organizations has 
always been uh, totally separate, uh, polarized. You, you, you'd think, and everybody agrees that they should be in communication, working together on the same page. Uh, it's very rarely the case. So this is what we're trying to work on. And this, is, this isn't even a globalization thing, right? This is a local thing as well. Yeah. This happens to every organization. So, so discounting the structural issues that exist between sales and marketing at all levels with all kinds of organizations, Asian conglomerates or MNCs, let's get down to the communication piece. Yeah. What have you observed um, in the time you've been here and watching global groups uh, communicate at local level? And as we know, Asia is very dynamic, uh, very fragmented, different languages languages, different cultures, different uh, predispositions yeah. towards certain ideas. Uh, it's a complex place to operate, very much like it would be, I think, in South America, is it not? Look, as we said before, you know, it, it starts in the bar. Um, what I found is the first couple months coming here, I've ended up getting a, a group of people, and we'd meet after work, and essentially it would turn into a kind of bitch fest. It's like, man, things don't work. I, I can't get my guys to make calls. And when they do make calls, it's not the way we want them to do it. And they're not listening. And it's the same. And like, so you get all of these um, anecdotes of just challenges of like, in this case, this would be Western managers trying to figure out how to get local teams to do what they want. Mm. And nine out of 10 times it not working that well. Right. Yeah. And so you, you, you get all of these anecdotes, you get sometimes, uh, sometimes ideas come out of it, sometimes bad ideas come yeah. out of it. What was missing, though, to me, was the evidence. Yeah. So I had tons of anecdotes. Right. Didn't have the evidence. Yeah. So it was the discovery of this cross-cultural data that, to me, which was like the moment going, ah, wait a minute, there's actually research that's out there that they've looked at this for decades of how people work differently in different parts of the world how they communicate differently, right. how they deal with conflict, okay. how they avoid conflict. So, so, you know, there are these, you know, anomalies in different parts of, of Asia. I mean, if in Japan, for instance, they oftentimes, Westerners will say, uh, well, uh, when we're told yes, it actually means maybe, and when they say maybe, it actually means no, yes. and it takes sometimes years for organizations to figure out that and understand what are the communication channels, what are the, the, the nuances that allow us to kind of break through to get to a point of having a conversation where we actually are on the same page. And, and, and I see that in Japan. It must be true in other uh, markets around the region? Um, massively. I, can, I was just in India last week, which would be another tons of stories, examples. I think the moment that happened to me, I was on a conference call, global call. A woman out of California was trying to get one country to volunteer to uh, test out the new, they were rolling out a new CRM for the whole company. Nobody, nobody was volunteering. What's a CRM for uh, our listeners? Customer relationship management system, yeah. right? So they were, they is a, it was a, is a large company. Actually, it, it was Sun Microsystems. Yeah. It's massive, right? Before they got acquired by Oracle, and so her job was to get countries to sign up for this. This a massive thing. Nobody was saying anything, and the country head for Japan, she called him out by name on this global call. I don't remember his name, but she said, you know, Mr. Whatever, um, how, would your, how would your team like to volunteer? <laughs> and the reaction? Well, he, well you, you know, it was so funny because he, he just said, um, he, yes. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there going, I know that means no, right? And, but she doesn't know that. Yeah. And, and that was, another, again, another anecdote, which was like, there's a lot of people like her out there that aren't going to catch that. Six months later, that entire thing was a disaster because he kept saying yes. He had no intention of having Japan pilot this thing. 
Yeah, what I find interesting about this, Kyle, is that a lot of people, it is, as you just pointed out, it's anecdotal. Yeah. You, you sit there and you hear these conversations or you're, you're in, even discussions or they even come up from uh, my Asian colleagues will say, you should have seen what happened <laughs> in our meeting up in, uh, you know, uh, Seoul last week. And, and they tell funny stories about, you know, Westerners trying to get things done. So it goes both ways. Yeah, but but it's not just these one-offs. There's actually um, patterning against it. So, and it's such to such degree, which you start to worry about is anybody taking this seriously? Because I guess the question at the end of the day is, is what's really at stake? So this is megabucks stuff. Um, every time I go in with companies to try and f- help them figure this stuff out, oftentimes there will be situations where they will have lost a deal or, or, or lost a major account thinking, wow, these guys, we lost this account because they, they just don't get it. You scratch the surface, and it's a—it's just a misunderstanding. Mm. Um, so, so they got it, but they just didn't do it. Didn't want to do anything with it. There was, uh, there would be situations where a in this uh, the ones that I'm dealing with mostly would be Western companies. They expand over across Asia. They win clients, and then there are um, issues servicing the clients, and it's oftentimes communication issues. And and the ones that I'm dealing with currently right now, a German company will try and communicate with their Indonesian client. And these are two very opposite communication styles, opposite working styles. They, they perceive time differently. And uh, one side story was a German, actually he was Swiss. He came down to Indonesia, uh, Jakarta. The meeting started four hours late. And he said, screw this. These, this is an insult to me and to everything that I stand for. I'm Swiss. We invented clocks. Um, that's the end of it. The deal fell through because this guy thought he was being insulted uh, in a way that, that he probably would have been insulted in Switzerland. But this is just how things work down there. Well, is there a possibility that knowing this and the fact that we are more global now than we were just five or 10 years ago, that in fact these devices are used by others specifically to infuriate or test the waters? Absolutely can be. Uh, you know, it's fun to, uh, from a fun, I'm using air quotes to watch this uh, US-China trade discussions because both, well, at least the Chinese seem, in, in, from what I'm read, uh, they're using a lot of those tactics exactly like that, right? Um, but in, in the day-to-day working business, business world that I see, a lot of the people, these are mid-level kind of moving up the food chain. I don't think that they really grasp that level of um, being able to take cultural differences and use that as a tool to get inside people's heads. They're really just trying to get the basics down to figure out how to uh, get somebody to do something. Mm. So, yeah. So years of watching, observing, collecting these stories uh, ultimately prompted an idea. What is that idea? For me, what happened was because there were so many clients that I was dealing with on the, in the call center side and the B2B marketing side, it, it t- started turning out that the marketing campaigns switched to strategy building. The strategy building went from the marketing team to say, you know what, you need to talk to our executives because this is a problem across the organization. And I found myself doing more and more of these workshops that were just about overarching communication rather than anything to do with with marketing or sales. So it, again, it kind of happened by accident. Uh, I would go in thinking I was trying to pitch a a marketing program and walk out with a deal that had to do with uh, executive coaching Mm. for for communication. So uh, So many of these things begin with awareness. And I think one of the things that I've observed is that oftentimes these uh, MNCs aren't 
entirely aware of what's going on. How do you, in these workshop settings or in these pre-selling opportunities, do you figure out whether or not uh, the MNCs are aware of the problem to begin with? So it's the it's the competency model, right? From the from the old days, which is that you you don't know what you don't know. And really, the biggest I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to get groups to do is to get from that phase to the phase where they go, you know what? I now understand that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's the biggest leap, right. um, and especially. Uh, Western companies who are used to doing things their own way, they come charging in and they don't know what they don't know. How do you do that? By sharing anecdotes, by, by you know, exchanging ideas, by giving them some insight about their org- own, own organization that they weren't aware of? All of the above. Uh, again, I'll give you an example. So I was up in, I think it was Frankfurt or, or Hamburg. Um, this was another German-Indonesian situation where they were inviting a, a CEO from an Indonesian company to a customer appreciation event. And they were saying, look, we understand that in Asia, it's all about relationships. We're doing this customer appreciation event. Great. They invite this CEO. The CEO responds by saying, my wife and I look forward to coming, and uh, we'd like to bring our executive team to meet all of your people. And the Germans kind of go, oh, no, 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 nine, nine. You know, that's not how we do things. This, this is an invitation for one person. So they wrote back to him. This is all email. They go, no, <laughs> this is just for you. And it didn't go down well. No, <laughs> because, it, you know, and from a communication standpoint, in many ways, you can't say no. Yeah. You, can, you can get to no, but it, it has to be done in a different path. This guy was pissed. Uh, and it and it took the entire and it took the uh, the account put it in jeopardy, and we spent a lot of time. So the, go, to, going back to your question, we talked about it and it was really it was really interesting because a lot of these guys up there had no idea that that was what was that was what was causing the misunderstanding, and that's where we showed the data. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to my conversation with Kyle Hegarty, Singapore-based entrepreneur, sales expert, and author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Accidental Business Nomad, a survival guide for working across a shrinking planet. Back in a moment. You're listening to Inside Asia, and I'm in conversation with Kyle Hegarty, storyteller, sales development expert, and budding author. After spending the first half of the conversation exploring the varying customs and habits of Western versus Asian executives and how these oftentimes lead to gross misunderstandings, we turned our attention to the lurking dangers of cultural stereotypes. Stereotypes? What's that? Well, let's find out. Back to our conversation. You know, when do you... um think about this. There's always the danger in having this conversation, I suspect, of creating an impression of a stereotype. Correct. Right? And and that's not what you're trying to do here. You're simply trying to say there are certain kind of orientations, uh, cultural orientations around things which are important. It could be a prioritization about what we consider to be more important. Um, And then you're you're applying to that certain rules of engagement. Is is that a correct understanding? I, I think it's a good way to say it. And again, like I started out by what so many of us we were out we're, we turns into bitch sessions which are very quickly can turn into stereotyping and all these things all these anecdotes that come out turn, you know th- these patterns emerge here what we're talking about is data that is actually looking at uh, behavior types and it's generalizations 
and now now that line between stereotypes and generalization that's another that's a that's a conversation for the bar but um, what what I'm interested in is can we look at what the data says and use it as a best first guess to try and understand what we're up against mm. we could be wrong mm. I'm not saying this data isn't necessarily black and white the truth mm. but it's a starting point indicators it's an indicator mm. it's uh, what I look at is both personality data at individual level and then we're looking at the at, from a cultural level well that's what I was gonna ask you about is you know it, it, forget culture for a second yeah. let's just take that out of the equation yep. let's talk about different personality types um, within leadership models you've got psychometric assessments yep. that then determine are you more inclined towards extroversion versus introversion um, are you good with uh, um, uh, people who challenge you or not um, how do you engage uh, when you know based on different circumstances and with those assessments we then know personality wise what somebody is and what they are not and then in a leadership dynamic you start to create uh, methods of engaging more effectively in effect is that what you're doing cross-culturally exactly so the workshops that we're doing the first half of the day is at an individual level so let's look at one of some of these tests let's look at these models and again it's 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 a um, it's a tricky balance because we're using generalization we're putting we are essentially putting people into boxes whether it's a disc or MBTI or any of these things you're, you are putting you to a degree you're doing it again it's a best first guess to get an understanding at what motivates or demotivates an individual mm. at a cultural level it's exactly the same thing we're just doing it at a, at a macro level do you see some alignment between the types of personality types you would typically see in markets across Asia uh, versus in Germany versus the U.S.? Yeah. Uh, you do. Can you explain that? There are a couple of, uh, there's some actually some interesting um, companies out there that are looking at this. And essentially what they're doing is they are merging the two or they're trying to find that relationship. Uh, I haven't thrown my hat in with any of them specifically, but I'm always interested. I was just chatting with one guy. He does intercultural DISC. So what he's looking at is DISC is the classic, you know, four quadrant thing. So yeah, D, what, what's that acronym for? D yeah. is uh, dominant. Mm -hmm. I would be uh, uh, influencers, more outgoing. S would be steady, a little bit more quiet. C's would be more uh, careful, mm -hmm. little an anal analysts, a um, little bit more focused on tasks rather than, than relationships. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is actually put countries into those based on some of the other data that's being out there. With, with an 80-20 rule. Uh, probably more than that. I mean, it's, you know, it's so tricky, right? I mean, you could say that the U.S. falls under D because it's dominant. We're the, we're the cowboys of the West, ready, fire, aim mindset. Um, but how varied is it between New York City and Oklahoma, right? There's a pretty wide gap on that. So it's, it's very, it's, this is why we're looking at macro data, and you've got to be a little bit careful with it. But uh, compare that, though. Compare the the fiery D, the dominant types, to more quiet, family-focused, steady, focused on harmony. Well, now we're in Asia, right. descriptors, right? In fact, a lot of the descriptors fall right into Confucian values, mm. and, and they're complete opposites in terms of behavior types. Explain that. Meaning that the dominant kind of, it's, it's a Western cowboy, right? If we're going to start just throwing around some, yeah. some stereotypes just for fun. Um, you've got your dominant, outgoing, extroversion-focused uh, people, and they are charging into markets that are more focused on building long-term steady relationships, mm. uh, conservative, not politically necessarily, but in terms of, of value systems where mm. family comes first. Uh, where you don't want to rock the boat, mm. where 
in some cases, extreme cases, uh, changing, doing things differently is actually looked down upon. Mm. But who are the who are the Western who's who gets chosen from Western companies to come open a new office? Yeah, the, the Hellraisers, the Cowboys. Yeah. So, so I mean, forget for a second West coming to Asia. We're in a, yeah. a new chapter. Let's sure. talk about Asia going west. Yeah. I mean, the Chinese companies are on a march. They've got incredible opportunities, both financially as well as uh, the types of products and services they're offering to go international. What kind of challenges are the Chinese facing when they're in the European or U.S. markets? So, this you're absolutely right. This is the new. This is the new story, and I love putting a culture filter to, to look through it and to, to think about it. Uh, let's get a, get an example. Uber, great, you know, U.S. story. They come over, they do things the Uber way. And I'm sure there's different opinions, but th- there's no Uber here. Well, well explain that. What, what would you say is the Uber way? Because that's, that's say, interesting for so people to hear. Say, you know, I would say these guys had a, a, a great idea. They had a ton of money. And their story, their approach was, we're going to go into a new market, and this is how we do things. We've got a system. It's scalable. This is how, this is how things are done. Hmm. <laughs> and what they found was, well, now, wait a minute. There's a bunch of local companies, competitors, and they're doing things in very different ways. Hmm. They're approaching it in different ways. And there was not that much flexibility from, the, from Uber's side. Now, this is in terms of the drivers or the operators or the joint venture partners or the government. I, I'd say all of the above, yeah. but I, I'm thinking about it right now from the ecosystem standpoint. Yeah. So what, look, take uh, Gojek, take Grab, take Didi. All of those companies, from, from my research and reading, from day one, they had more of an ecosystem approach. They partnered with all sorts of things. I think in parts of Vietnam, you know, day one, you were renting bicycles. You could rent motorcycles. They were doing uh, auto repair. They were offering massage stuff, both probably you know, good and bad ideas. Uh, they were doing all sorts of delivery, right? Mm-hmm. So Uber Eats is still being just introduced in some parts of the world now. Yeah. This is, and this is, we're talking an eight-year eight gap. So what, the thing that kills me about this is that, you know, what one of the greatest leading notions of any successful private venture is that customers always right. Listen to the market. Let the market tell you what is, what's needed. Why would a group like Uber, or let's take Netflix as well. They were equally, I think, belligerent about doing it their way, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Well, what about, what about why, why weren't they listening to the markets? Was it just because it was about scaling at all costs? Uh, they'd been operating in the U.S. market. They had 320 million uh, potential consumers customers and therefore why wouldn't it work anyone else is it was it that blunt end in terms of how they thought about it so i I think probably there was some aspect of we're the top we know what we're doing and and i think this i don't know i don't don't know if it's a cultural superiority feeling because it's not fair to put that onto people without knowing but there is a perception of you know we're coming from the u.s this is the toughest best market ever so everybody's going to be lucky to get our stuff mm. and the world has changed right these local companies are doing things their own way and that's that localization which i think is getting stronger and stronger so I, it's absolutely fascinating though to watch how the asian competitors are expanding this gets to your point about these chinese companies so how is Didi, the the uber equivalent in china mm. how are they expanding it's a very different approach to what uber did what is, it, is it successful to be to be determined right. what they're doing is they are partnering with local on the ground companies already so i think they're doing a ton of joint ventures across all these different countries mm. they're doing a big push right now into latin america mm. the latest research i've done has been a little bit quiet mm. and my experience on the partnership side of things 
the, the pros to this, the advantages, is that you get local insight, you get the on-the-ground experience, you can be much more flexible with local customers always right mindset. The downside is you don't have the control and you've got to figure out how to manage those partnerships and then multiply that out by tons of com- countries. Mm. But if you think about it from like an ecosystem standpoint, from more of a holistic way, the Asian approach is to partner, whereas the um, U.S. approach was to go it alone, right? I mean, again, it's the cowboy approach versus the the, the group approach. And, and, and I hear that, but at the same time, culturally, I also hear that some of the Chinese companies trying to go global are also hiring only Chinese, yep. which isn't going to get the job done when you're operating in Latin America and Africa, right? Well, speaking of Netflix, so that movie that just came out, I don't know if you watched The the, the Factory, the, uh, the thing that was produced by Obama. So it was a documentary about a U.S. Uh, a dying town in the U in the Midwest, uh, and they and the Chinese company bought out a, a, a failed or closed down factory, and so the movie documents this culture clash between here comes the Chinese company trying to figure out how to do this, and here's they're hiring a bunch of locals, local Americans to do the work, mm-hmm. and I mean I highly recommend that that show because. Anybody who's been through a culture clash situation is going to roll their eyes going, oh, man, I've, I know I've seen this before. I've experienced this. Kyle, let's come to the book. Uh, what's the title of your book? Um, it's coming out shortly. And what's the premise? So the book's called The Accidental Business Nomad. And I've explained already why my accidental part. But my argument is actually um, that more and more people are accidentally gone global. So you, what I'm finding is that more people just are working in global teams, whether they travel a lot or not. Hmm. So the idea is that uh, it's a survival guide for working across a shrinking planet. I explain that. Well, the subtitle is basically designed to say, look, this is, can we take, I guess another way to say it is that I think that what expats go through, that culture shock thing, maybe it's two years, maybe it's four years, maybe, I don't know, I'm on year 12, 13, I'm still trying to figure it out. How can you take that culture shock? How can you take that um, with anecdotes and with data and tell that story in a way that, that gets people moving from don't, not knowing what they don't know to now being aware that they don't know mm. and then thinking about the tools that they can use to get moving forward? Mm. The book is a very um, lighthearted approach. Uh, I've kind of described the way I sold it to the publisher was that it was basically Hunter S. Thompson meets Gert Hofstede. The uh, <laughs> live up to that behavioral. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> it starts in a bar, Steve. It's got a you know. And yeah, Hunter started I, in a well, bar. I, well, I that's think. What I said. I said. I said. Yeah. Imagine if Hunter S. Thompson got Gert Hofstede a little bit drunk. Like, let, let's see where that goes. I'd rather not think about it. I, it well, there's going to be some uh, interesting discussions with the editors in yeah. the coming months as yeah. this thing goes live. But yeah, I'm I'm going to be. This is this is an interesting approach to try and get people having fun with a topic that, I mean, there's great stories out there, yeah. but, but how can we actually learn from them, mm. right? You know, at, at a time when some would argue globalization is in retreat, it's interesting that uh, this is a conversation about further globalization and communication. It is. I think, I, I, I think that the statement globalization is in retreat is, is, is misguided. I think that globalization is evolving. Uh, there's more people working in global teams now than ever before. Remote uh, teams are, are massive. You can't put this stuff back. Now, oftentimes traditional globalization is being tracked by the stuff in, on boats. 
That's how they that's how they count this stuff. What do you mean stuff on boats? Shipping. Oh. So globalization in from a if you're counting how much stuff we buy and sell to other countries from a product standpoint, mm -hmm. that has flatlined. And we've seen that flatlining for the last few years. And obviously the trade wars issues, the Brexits of the world, that's not helping at all. What's not counted in those measurements is the digital side of things, meaning the, the conversations that are happening through fiber optics, mm. the cloud computing that's going on, mm. the fact that people can now sell, that you, you start a company today and it's global from day one. Yeah, virtual oh. teams everywhere. Everywhere, mm. companies are born global today. Right. Right. Uh, and so I don't think that it's, it's, it's just, I think that globalization is turning into a services-based global uh, environment and more and more people are gonna be hitting this communication and working style differences. So that's mm. that's why I think the timing's really good for this. And we're not talking about, you know, a language issue. We're talking about style right. and so so I, in fact it's invisible stuff. I'm talking about the invisible stuff. Yeah. That's that and that's that's the hard part is getting from not knowing what you don't know mm. to knowing that you don't know something, yeah. right? Because it's invisible. It, once you identify the problem, you can flag the communication issues. You then go through these workshops or these trainings to get people to be more aware of what they're missing out on and therefore uh, engaging at a different level. What's the hope and expectation? How do you track the changes and improvements? Yep, so it's a series of tools. We're trying to get the awareness, get the aha moments. Um, call it this global go bag. So we've kind of given them a giving people a bunch of ideas. Here's here's some ways to adjust. And how do you track it? Um, it that's a tough one, right? Any type of learning and development system is is actually difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're doing is we're getting we're finding what we call internal ambassadors. What we want to do is get a couple of people in different offices who are they get it, the light bulbs are on and they understand the amount of money that's being potentially lost or being left on the table. Yeah, that'll get people listening. Especially in, here we are at the end of 2019, the economy is slowing down. I mean, if we do go into a global recession, companies need to tighten up their ship. And yeah. this is includes people in actually improving communications in order to reduce losses. What happens is, oh, you know, we saw this in the in the downturn in 08. I mean, companies just, they start shutting down their their offices around the world it's probably not gonna be that easy this time. So then it's gonna be, okay, well, how do we do more with less? How do we be smarter about this? We're talking about agile teams now. Agile teams are great, but how do you get agile teams to work together if they have totally different working styles? Mm. That's, a, that's turned into a big, a big one. Yeah, this is the crux then, is what you're saying. You believe that this is, this is the one pivot point that could make a difference in how organizations operate. What makes me laugh when I see headlines and things talking about AI is the future and artificial intelligence, and that's going to that's gonna solve the problems. And it's like, guys, we need to figure out just the human intelligence first before we can, uh, fine, like go, you know, but technology never solves the core problems. It's a people problem. So we've got to deal with that first. Kyle, always a pleasure. Let's go have a drink. Let's do it. <laughs>
Our discussion left me thinking about the complexities of communication. I'm not talking about language barriers or even cultural differences, but rather how we are all predisposed to believe that when we say something, it's been communicated. Instead, we should ask ourselves, when something is said, has it been understood? Evidence suggests that we're misunderstood more often than we might think. I don't want to get overly personal, but the last time you fought with your spouse, was it about what you said or how you said it? As often as not, it's the how. Am I right? Now think about the way we work. Emails, text, WhatsApp, voicemails, and the occasional face-to-face. What we gain in efficiency thanks to technology, we lose in interpersonal nuance. For millions of years, we as humans have been trained to pick up on all forms of nonverbal communication. Body language speaks volumes. Tone is everything. Now add to this communication cornucopia the element of cultural difference. To make the point, think about this. What if Dale Carnegie walked into a bar? You remember Dale Carnegie, the famous early 20th century American lecturer and godfather of American-style salesmanship who made famous the saying, success is getting what you want, happiness is wanting what you get. Yeah, that guy. So he walks into a bar and there's an old and wise-looking Asian character wearing a gown and a long white beard. He's sitting quietly contemplating the tea leaves in his cup when Dale walks in, slaps him on the back, and shouts, What are you having? Bartender, give this man a drink. The old gentleman, though startled, looks up from his cup and while slightly averting his eyes says, and I quote, As the water shapes itself to the vessel that contains it, a wise man should adapt himself to circumstances. I'll have a beer. The old man, you may have guessed, is Confucius, and so it is with his words of wisdom that we come upon what could prove the most singularly critical human behavior of our time, adaptation. The world is rife, as Kyle points out, with cross-cultural miscommunication. But it strikes me that what's missing isn't the ability to communicate, but rather the inability to adjust and adapt to the communication styles of others. For decades, the economic dominance of Western nations imposed a my-way-or-the-highway attitude on business partners throughout the developing world. And in the interest of commerce and profit, these business partners largely complied. Those days are done. It's a new era led by a new breed of Asian business leader armed with a global agenda. With this shift in power will most assuredly come a shift in style. And the only question worth asking is, how adaptable will we all be? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. If you don't have time to listen but want to stay connected to the many ideas and themes presented by our guests, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. We track Asia in transition and each week deliver new insights, point you to reliable resources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, thank God it's Friday. Have a great weekend, and as always, thanks for listening.